the followers of Jesus Christ have a vital responsibility. God calls us to the lifelong discipline of influencing our unbelieving world for Christ. I call this a discipline because relating to a society that rejects Jesus as Lord requires that we master a very delicate balance. Consider it with me today. There is on the one end accommodation of the world that we are touching. Becoming like that world. There is on the other end the danger of isolation from it. The world is a tainted place. It is filled with sin and with misery. And we may find in our minds the thought that we can serve God better and know Him better if we walk in isolation from this world. Some Christians, using the term in the broadest sense of the term, so thoroughly accommodate the unbelieving society in which they live that they are entirely assimilated by it. There's a local church in Texas that meets in a gay bar not to evangelize that community, but to confirm it. One of the pastors is lesbian, and liberal social activism is the church's primary focus. This church's relationship to this world is marked by accommodation of the world, then capitulation to the world, and then assimilation into the world. In the name of Christ, such so-called churches take the hand of Christ-rejecting people and they skip down the road to eternal destruction with them in the name of Jesus. Now on the far opposite end of the spectrum are those Christians who believe that pursuing Christ is done better in utter isolation from the world. Your eye may make out in this graphic to the left side a cable. The only way in and the only way out. Well, the only safe way in and out at least. In this monastery, Christians attempt to escape the world with all of its temptations to isolate themselves from it in monastic seclusion so as to pursue devotion to Christ. If we get away from the world, we can know Christ better. And, by the way, there certainly are moments and occasions when that is appropriate. But this is the lifestyle of some, and for some for many years, living in such isolation from the world. Now, there's a different twist on this very same theme, and that is others who segregate themselves in impenetrable communities. They're communities so separated from the world by cultural standards and arbitrary rules and regulations that the world cannot begin to understand, let alone to apply those norms. As we just look at some of these graphics and consider these two poles, how do you respond? What do you think? How would you prove biblically that these extremes are wrong. You're sitting down with someone with open mind who is asking legitimately why would one or the other 
be off track? Why, why, how could you argue biblically opposing these two extremes? I think certainly one place that our mind may well track is to Christ's commission to His disciples in Matthew 28. Just think of these two poles as we consider this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. We've sung of it today, haven't we? All authority throughout the whole earth, every inch, is His. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those who withdraw in total isolation fail to go into all the world as Christ's representatives. And the other extreme simply fails to teach all that Jesus said and all for which He stood. I think if we were amassing a number of texts that would help us to find this appropriate balance, the discipline of this balance between these two extremes, we would also come certainly to Matthew chapter 5 in the text that we will consider here this morning. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, we find one of those classic statements of this balance to go into all of the world and to proclaim Christ's truth in confrontation, in distinction from what this world teaches, but touching it and going to it and finding ourselves in that world. Matthew chapter 5. Now, as we come to verse 13 of Jesus' sermon, we should hardwire these verses to the Beatitudes that Jesus has just articulated in verses 3 through 12. We don't want to draw an undue divide here. There's certainly a change of topic. We come out of what is known as these Beatitudes, where Christ addresses this question. Who are the people that God blesses? What do they look like? What does a genuine follower of Christ look like? And we probably struggled last week to even make clear what blessedness is. But it is a state of spiritual joy in which the believer receives God's approval, which then flows with God's gracious provision. As we look at that provision, we look at how God relates to those that are blessed, we could summarize this with the statement, the satisfied soul is this one who finds in Christ and in His ways the approval of God and His abundant provision and grace. So as we consider again these Beatitudes, the satisfied soul, the one that finds its hope in God, the one that is blessed by His provision and grace is one who is poor in spirit. This is the follower of Christ. This is the genuine individual who seeks to be what Christ wants him to be. Poor in spirit. Such people see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, unable to gain God's favor on their own merits, utterly dependent upon God for His grace. Second, they mourn. They mourn their own sin. They're moved with a heaviness as they consider 
The ways that they break the law of God and they're moved with a sense of heaviness as they live in a world that is rejecting His ways and His grace. Thirdly, they are meek. That is, they are so affected by the reality of their sin and God's grace that they deal patiently and graciously with others. Not promoting self, but choosing love and seeing themselves for who they really are. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They long to live in faithful obedience to Christ. They are merciful. They're moving back and forth throughout this world, seeking to relieve pain and suffering, lifting up those who have fallen into miseries. There is a change agent with mercy. They're pure in heart. They relate to others with sincerity and integrity of heart. There's no duplicity. They're straight up. It's who they are. You see it. You know them. There's a pure heart in all they do. They're peacemakers. They love to bridge the gap between people who might be at war without them. Encouraging reconciliation, averting relational wars in every way that's honorable. And they are then, in this world, the persecuted. Verses 10-12. through 12. Living in this way in a Christ-rejecting world is entirely countercultural, and it leads to conflict. The kingdom of man conflicts with the kingdom of heaven. And the people of Christ hurt for it. The merciful, the meek, the pure in heart, they get hit. And they rejoice. Because they know this is the story. To live for Christ is to welcome the ire of Satan and his children. And so they're the persecuted. As we consider these individuals, we might say, what commune do they live in? they, They clearly can't touch this world. As we consider these individuals, we say, where are they? How do they relate to the world? How should the genuine follower of Christ, who is striving to live like this, How should that individual relate to a world that is so hostile to these ideas? Maybe not consciously hostile, but so ordered against it. How should they live? Jesus takes that up now at verse 13. They should live as the salt of the earth. We see the declaration of this fact, really, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He informs them. Now, before we consider what does that mean, we're the salt of the earth, let's consider just for a brief moment the audacity of this statement. These are rural Galileans. These are Jewish people who are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. There's an occupying force in their land. They're a small people. And yet he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. Now I think here, as well as, for instance, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is seeing well beyond the people who are right in front of him because he's saying, you are the salt of the earth, not just the salt of northern Palestine. Many of these people would never journey any further than perhaps Jerusalem in their life, and that very occasionally, but they are the salt of the earth. So he certainly is including other people in his, 
in the net of his statement. But he does include them. You are the salt of the earth. Well, what does he mean? This is pretty widely debated as what it means that we are the salt of the earth. I think it boils down the legitimate ideas. Salt was used in many, many ways in that setting. The legitimate ideas would be that salt creates taste, that it creates thirst, and that it is used to preserve. But I think it's this third idea, one less obvious to us, that is the primary emphasis. You have to kind of make a choice in how you apply this. But I think that's the primary emphasis as I've understood it, and as many have. But let's remember, let's go back to Galilee, and let's remember the world in which they live. There is no refrigeration. There is really very little by way of antiseptic medicine outside of some plants applied to a wound or something. So salt does definitely make food tastier. It certainly can create thirst. But in that day, salt was the primary antiseptic and defense against fleshly decay. It would have been used constantly in this way. So used to treat wounds, to fight infection. It would get down into the wound and it would preserve the flesh from the infection. Used to treat meat so that it could last more than a few days. They would handle meat by receiving it and then rubbing it with salt. Rubbing salt into it or dipping it into a salt bath to preserve that meat longer. And it could preserve it considerably longer depending on how it was treated. And so if if I'm right in this understanding that this is the primary emphasis, we might say it this way in our day, you are the refrigerator of the earth. Now, the refrigerator makes some food taste better, right? Some things are just better cold. But if we would ever, we don't even know what it's like to live without a refrigerator, most of us. But if you took it away, what you would find is that the taste was secondary. What was really important with the refrigerator is that it keeps food from going bad. It keeps it from decaying. And I think that is the primary idea here. It keeps food from rotting. Now, a refrigerator, unlike a freezer, doesn't keep it forever, and even a freezer ultimately doesn't, right? But it slows down the process of decay. It resists it. I think this is the idea then. You are the salt of the earth. The follower of Jesus Christ who is poor in spirit and meek and merciful, a peacemaker and the like, has a preservative effect against the moral rottenness of this world. Our lives are influence. They keep the decay at bay. The genuine follower of Jesus is in a sense salt rubbed into the rotting flesh of this moral depravity. That's Christ's declaration to us. Now, the implication by way of illustration. Verse 13. 
The implication to this truth by way of illustration, verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now you say taste, there it is, that must be the point of salt is that it makes things tasty. Well, undoubtedly salt was used as a condiment then and certainly now, but how do you know if the salt you're using to cure the meat is any good? you're going to taste it. You're going to dip your finger into it and put it on your tongue and say, yeah, this will work. It's lost its saltiness. It's no good. Now, somebody, a scientist among us, will step forward and go, wait a minute, sodium chloride is a very stable chemical compound. It doesn't lose its taste. Salt cannot lose its taste. Have you ever had salt shaker and tasted it? No, No, it's going to taste pretty much forever. But let's remember, they didn't get their salt out of the salt shaker. Where did they get it? One of the primary places was the Dead Sea, a major source of salt that was collected from marshes and lagoons and on rocks around the lake. Today, our salt is very pure because of modern processing methods. You're getting your salt from a refinery. Got it all nice and perfect for you and you never think anything of it. That's not where they got their salt. And so the sodium chloride, very soluble, could very easily be leached out of the product that they got from, let's say, the Dead Sea. And what was remaining then was just a white powder. You, put, you touch your tongue and you put on salt and you say, ah, it's worthless. This stuff's too old, it's no good. All the good stuff's gone. And so you throw it out on the street, out on the dirt path. It's good for nothing else. It's just dirt now. That's the idea. So Jesus is teaching us as His followers, the world is rotting away in its lust to break God's moral law. The born-again follower of Jesus Christ is disinfectant. He or she is a disinfecting agent against this moral decay. We slow it down. We minimize its effects as our righteousness rubs against the lives of unbelievers in their unrighteousness. And if we are not having that effect on people that we touch every day, then we are not influencing the world the way that Jesus intends for us to influence it. Our very purpose for being on the planet is fumbled. I want to talk just by way of application here for a few moments. Let's reflect on these ideas. And I want to put this under three headings. We could add others. We could look at it differently. But I think what Jesus teaches us here very clearly is about holiness, first of all. Holiness. Jesus called us out of the world. And in the doctrine of the church which follows following Christ's death and resurrection, we come to discern this more fully. He has called us out of the world. He has distinguished us as His own. We are called to a life then of moral purity and the pursuit of righteousness. That is to become a unique focus of God's people. Now, holiness is simultaneously off-putting to the world and attractive to it. 
On one level, they don't like it because it exposes their sin. Yet on another level, here is an answer, an alternative to the life that I lead with all of its emptiness. We should be winsome. There is no virtue in being weird, but we are called to be different. Salt is different than rotting meat. Holiness. Secondly, influence. Let me bring a cross-reference here in so I don't miss it, but I think it's valuable. Jesus gave Himself, Paul writes to Titus, He gave Himself for us to, this is His purpose, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. There's a purchase there, a redemption, a choosing of a people out of this world for a specific purpose to be zealous for good works. We see a lot of zeal in this world for unrighteousness. God has chosen you, follower of Jesus Christ, to be strange, to be different. He's possessed you for that very purpose. Holiness. Secondly, influence. Are you a born-again follower of Christ? Have you come to genuine faith in Christ as your Savior, crucified and risen and living and coming again? Is He your Lord? If so, you were given the gift of new life in Christ for this reason, in part, to rub shoulders with the lost. That's why He gave you life, for one purpose. Jesus wants you to talk to unbelievers, to live among them in redemptive ways. One reason He saved you is so that your presence at work, your conversations in the neighborhood, your participation on the team will serve to restrain the godlessness that would otherwise erupt in those communities. You don't necessarily or even typically preach a message. It's not just what you tell them. It's how you live this life to which Christ has called us. That is salt in the rotting flesh. So even though you may not preach a message, your speech has the salty effects that causes others to, for instance, swear less when you're around. Refrain from the dirty jokes they know you don't celebrate with them. It has an effect. I'm not the hero of this story. It's a disappointing story to me to this day, but... I think it illustrates the point how sometimes we don't even need to preach a message. I wish I could go back to this day. I think about it all the time, and boy, do I have a speech now. Have you ever had a situation with unbelievers like that? You can't think of what to say, but boy, you can answer them after it's over. But I was a university student, a secular university, and I made some friends playing pickup basketball in the evenings, and with a friend, several of us played ball, and then got showered and went over to the cafeteria to eat supper together. And one of the young men that I was probably the closest to 
took up an extended, sensual commentary about the body of a young woman who had just walked past us. The secular university, a fairly common conversation. I was a believer. I was a follower of Christ. I was not savvy in my response. I was thinking about what to say. I was a bit embarrassed by it. I didn't know what to do. And I ended up saying nothing. But as I thought about it, that wasn't normal. To say nothing in that spot, consider the setting, consider the participants, it wasn't normal to say nothing. And in that silence, a message was sent, and I never heard a similar word from that friend again. That's salt. Sometimes it's not very savvy salt. Sometimes we don't even know what we're saying or what, how to put it, but it has an effect. Imagine if I had joined in with his thinking, had confirmed it, had encouraged it, what would our next meal together have looked like? And I didn't eat with him often or know him all that well, but what would it have looked like? pretty confident it would have looked differently. That's salt. Now, by God's grace, we can have influence on a larger scale and on larger scale social corruption concerns as well as just in some of these types of smaller situations. But the simple point is that one reason Jesus keeps you on earth is to rub shoulders with unbelievers and to influence them for the sake of righteousness. By what you say. By what you do not say. By what you do. By what you do not do. By the way, let them know you're a follower of Jesus in the process. You don't have to wear a t-shirt. You don't have to scream it at them, but let them know, I live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In one way or another, let them know that. Then as they watch your life and its strangeness, they know the roots of the strangeness. You're just not weird and don't get it. You're following another Lord. You're salt Point three, by application, is pessimism. Pessimism. God's Word will not permit us to expect unbelievers to be pretty good people. Now, our pessimism is not pessimism for its own sake. Our pessimism is realistic, and it's always laced with hope and joy. But we realize God-rejecting cultures are not getting better and better with time, with age. Meat that is untreated with salt doesn't just get better or stay the same. Such biblical pessimism about the heart of mankind actually has a positive effect upon our spirits. It preserves us against the Christian bitterness that plagues so many, and particularly in this nation, because we've had a different history than we have right now. And so you run into a lot of Christians that are just mad people. Just not happy about the fact that this world is rotting and changing so quickly. Angry Christians who rail against the godless culture or withdraw in pouting protest. 
Can't get my way, I'll just walk away. This place is going to hell in a handbasket. What do I have time for it? That kind of spirit is godless. It's godless. Learning from Christ that we are the salt of the earth grounds us with a steady sense of reality. So I ask you, Christian American, what will preserve America from the morally destructive path on which she now treads? I know it will fix it. The right president. You're going to be depressed. <laughs> a new Congress. Maybe, we, maybe a new con- uh, The right Supreme Court justice. That'll do it. A new policy, a new set of laws, some social programs that just haven't been considered yet. That's the hope of America. Christian, there is one thing standing between America and her moral collapse. You. You. I didn't say it. I would never have said you are the salt of the earth. I'm the salt of the earth. But Jesus did. It's you. It's a high calling. Not you and your own strength, obviously. Not you and your own goodness, clearly. But look at what Jesus says here. How you share the truth of Christ. That's it. That's the answer. How you treat your neighbor and love your mate. How you choose mercy instead of revenge, meekness instead of anger, pure speech instead of vulgarities. How you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the salt on the rotting flesh. How you invest your time and treasure and talents in Christ's cause. How you are willing to suffer rejection and ridicule for Christ. How you fight injustice, serve the weak, help the needy. This is how salt is rubbed into the flesh of America and every other nation where God's people are found. Now salt comes in small grains that penetrate the flesh. Lloyd-Jones speaks of, and I use his phrase here, cellular infiltration. That's a great phrase. It's cellular infiltration of a growing network of individual believers in a society. The church, in a sense, is the salt shaker. We've got to be careful where we stick our nose and how many enemies we make because we want people to come to the gospel. We don't want, as a church, to simply alienate everyone that's not a righteous person. We hold our doors open and we say, come one, come all, and hear what Christ has done for sinners. We've got to be cautious. We will have an effect in this culture, in our neighborhood, undoubtedly as a church. But the effect is largely through cellular infiltration. One grain at a time rubbed into the flesh. That's you. You are the salt of the earth.
Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Again, a declaration of fact. You are the light of the world. We note the audacity of the claim again. In contrast to salt, though, we have light here, the metaphor of light backed by a sizable amount of biblical material, unlike you are the salt of the earth. With light, we have much to go on. Light in Scripture speaks of the revelation of truth. It speaks of moral purity. It speaks of glory, ultimately the glory of God. But there is a glory that shines from us as light as well. And it bespeaks of darkness, a symbol of all that is evil and terrifying to the soul. The source of that light, of course, is not us ultimately. It is Christ. I am the light of the world, He said in John 8 and verse 12. I am the light of the world. But He says to us, you are the light of the world as well. In a derivative way, undoubtedly, not in our own strength, not because there's an inner spark, but because we know Christ. We now become the light of this world to reveal the truth, to expose moral impurity, and to bring evidence of the glory of God in this world. Filled with Christ's Spirit, we shine as a thousand beacons of light, crisscrossing a dark world and displaying the wisdom of God's counsel and the glory of His holy name in a world of moral darkness. Again, the implication by way of illustration. Here's the truth. You are the light of the world. Implication by way of illustration. Verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Think here of a world without electrical lighting. On a cloudless night, you really can't see your hand in front of your face. It's that dark. But a city set on a hill, even without electricity, where there are torches and there are small lanterns or lamps being uh, burned at night, that city on a hill can't be hidden. You can, the, the, the little light from it reflecting off the clouds can cast a light for a long way around. This isn't ancient Israel, but it just gives you a little bit of a sense of the picture. It's not going to be lit up. That's electrical light without question. But I couldn't get a photograph of a city on ancient Israel Hill. But it gives you kind of the sense of it. You, you can't hide that thing. It's, it's standing out everywhere around. This is sort of the sense of it. City set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. A lamp. I didn't flip it on with a switch, but here's an ancient lamp, just a simple clay container with a wick and olive oil burning. You put it under a basket, it's not going to work too well, but you put it on some type of a pedestal. Think again, the vast majority living in a home somewhere in the 10 by 14, 12 by 12 foot, square foot home, single rooms, put up in this single room. They did most of their living outside, but they have these little tiny homes. One lamp like this can allow everybody to get around. And what do you do with it? You put it on a stand. You put it where its it's flame is going to benefit the room. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand so that it gives light to the whole house. 
the moral necessity he now describes in verse 16. So what is who you are? Implication by way of illustration now. Consider this, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let it shine. Jesus is calling us to live our lives in a way that others can see. We all know, if you're awake at all, if you're truly following Christ, you know what it is to hide under the basket. You've done it. You've hid your light. light. You have not shared it with the world as you should. Jesus says, get out and shine. Where the effect of salt is largely preservative, and in that sense negative, light's effect is positive. It does not retard moral degradation. It dispels it. It gives the answer. So we see purpose one here in verse 16. Let your light shine before others, the command, for this purpose, so that they may see your good works. There's purpose one. That people would see your good works. Going back again to the Beatitudes, that they would see you living like that. Merciful and meek, hungering for righteousness, peacemaking, these ideas. Now, obviously, the point of Jesus here is not to show off, to attract attention for its own sake. He had some things to say to the Pharisees about that approach. That's not the point, that they would see you so that they're just seeing you. But what's the point? People must see you live. They must hear you talk differently. They must demonstrate unusual care for others and treat others mercifully, labor as a peacemaker, endure ridicule for your faith with steadfast resolve. They need to see that. If nobody sees it, you're shining your light under a bushel. I have a pastor friend. I just learned this story. He's, he's in a very liberal city more liberal than our city, which is saying something. He had a young daughter that he has enrolled in a public school, and the word got out that he was a pastor. And then word got out what kind of pastor he was, and the word homophobic came up. This man is very gracious, very careful with what he stands on and doesn't. He, he's, he's read every good thing into his life that you can. But because he was not affirming of what our world affirms, he was labeled. The persecution continued when the teacher who was to receive his daughter in class said, I don't know if I want her in my class. She's going to be trouble." It's a little girl living in a city not so terribly far from here. I don't know if I want her in my class. I mean, that hurts a dad's heart. That's tough to take. Well, what do you do? You go on. He takes her to school one day and he drops her off and takes her to her class. She's very young. He takes her to the class. He's walking down the hallway and this same teacher, this was some time later, this same teacher crosses him in the hallway and says, hey, I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> You're probably feeling it with him. The heart drops, starts to pound. You're going, oh boy, here it comes. 
And this teacher said, I don't know what you're doing with your kids, but keep doing it. She's a great kid. That's light. That's dispelling the darkness. The ignorance of what constitutes hatred in this world can be dispelled by the light of genuine love. Maybe for somebody something like this played out today and you're just getting here. I picture a neighbor opens the front door, wiping sleep out of his eyes with one hand, a cup of coffee in the other, hair all messed up, unshaven, in his PJs, retrieving the newspaper from the step. His goal this Sunday morning is to drink this coffee very slowly, continue warming it up, read the entire paper, relax. Could take an hour to wake up today. But as he's picking that paper up off the ground, he looks up and there's you in your car, all dressed up and ready to go to church, waving to him. And the guy says in his head, what on earth is wrong with those people? They are just weird. And you wave and you say, yes, we are. Yes, we are. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That they would see your good works. Purpose number two, verse 16, a purpose for the purpose. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The goal is that the infinite, soul-satisfying worth and perfections and beauty of God would be seen in all its splendor by those who are in moral darkness as they look at your life. Gulp. Wow. That's a humbling thought. Jesus wants the world to see the light that reveals the glorious worth of His infinite beauty and purity in the way that I live. Now that is a call on my life to live a certain way and it's a call in my life to get out there and live in front of people so that they can see it. And if I'm, ready, if I'm not ready for this, the answer is not to run and hide in seclusion. The answer is to change and to let your light shine. It won't shine with perfection. You're no blazing torch. I'm no blazing torch. By God's grace, a little candle can light the darkness enough to see. I, I, some might think it's cheesy. I don't think it is. I think it's really worth thinking about. That common phrase, you are the only Bible that most people will ever read. How much are they reading? How much are they seeing in our lives? You're the only Bible some people will ever read. What a great tragedy it would be in light of Jesus' teaching that we would die and many people would come to learn at our funeral that we were a follower of Christ. 
What a tragedy. Christian worker, God has given you a job. Not so you can simply earn money. He's given you a job so you can be salt and light in the workplace. He's not given you a neighborhood so you can hide in your house and thank your lucky stars that your neighbors mind their own business. It's not why He gave you a house. He gave you that house, that apartment, so that you will be salt and light there. A grain in the putrefying flesh. A little candle in the darkness right there. In your school, with your extended family, at the library, in the political system, volunteering organizations, social institutions in your city, God has placed you in a position to preserve and to illuminate. To illumine the darkness with our lives. So if there's that temptation on our parts, and perhaps we're bent that way somewhat as a people who love God's Word, who seek to honor it, perhaps we're a bit bent the way of saying, let's just withdraw in despair. Let's forget this fallen world and isolate and rest in our own conclave. Where that temptation gets into your head, I want nothing more to do with this world. Let me just withdraw myself. That is not godliness. That thought is worldliness. It's wickedness. I face it and I have to fight it. And perhaps you do as well. It's disobedience to Jesus. It's a rejection of His purpose for us. For He said to you as a true follower of Christ, you are salt and you are light in this world. We're not sufficient for these things. But this is the truth that He's revealed to us. I am salt and I am light. Preserve and illumine the truth of God. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, in behalf of some among us who have not seen the light of the gospel in its clarity and its fullness, who have not come to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior with joy and gladness, who would not be willing to sell everything that they have in order to purchase the privilege to know Jesus, should that even be possible, who have not come to realize that you don't need to purchase anything, but that His salvation is a free gift that He has paid the penalty of our sin with His death, that He's given resurrection life to His people. Anybody who doesn't know that here today, I pray that even this consideration of who your people are would create thirst and prove tasty and turn them to repentance. For those of us who know You, I just pray that You would hear the groans of the Spirit in our behalf. We need You. We ask that You would help us to be faithful to this calling in a dark 
and rotting world. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.